Chapter 8 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 8 Typhoon in Sunny Spain. If Ferrol were typical of all Spain, we'd be perfectly content to let the week we spent there suffice for the rest of our lives. But it isn't. Ferrol, like all other naval and military posts the world over, is provincial, stupid, and complacently benighted. About the only virtue that the place possesses is its picturesqueness. In this respect, it lives up to the backdrops of the Metropolitan Opera. In every other respect, it leaves much to be desired except for its harbor, which ranks among the finest of all Europe. No sooner had we dropped the hook between the quay and the ancient walled dockyard than a boat put out from the landing stage bearing a young man who proved to be the amateur sailor of the town. I say the amateur sailor, for, while there were several other men in the place who owned sail and motorcraft, and used them occasionally just for the fun of the thing, they were unique in a town in which there seemed to exist no interest in sport, at least of the outdoor variety. The young man's name was Martin. He is the son of the British vice-consul and was educated in England, which may account for his interest in boats. He and his father, and the vicar's engineers who built the battleships, needed no further explanation from us than that we were cruising because we liked that sort of thing. Most everyone else in town, including the pinafore naval officers, seemed to consider us either liars or fools. I've been thought a fool in a good many different languages, including the Scandinavian, and I don't mind it at all. In fact, it is a relative sort of term implying a difference of opinion, and therefore is more or less of a compliment coming from some quarters, but I still object to having my veracity impugned. Following on the heels of Martin came the customs officials in a steam launch, a benighted bunch with an interpreter who seemed to have great difficulty in explaining to them that we were merely one of those incomprehensible yachts that occasionally descended on them to disturb the even tenure of their existence. Our Canadian rye seemed to be the only thing on the ship that was perfectly understandable, and when they appeared reluctant to leave, I thought it a subtle compliment to the liquor. It seemed, however, that I had neglected a very important part of all such formalities. I had not come across with the usual gratuity, an oversight that was corrected after I had been delicately reminded by one of the officials. Whether grafting is inherent in the temperament of these people, or is a necessary result of the inadequate pay that everyone in the government employ receives, I can't say, but since the art is practically universal, I imagine that both explanations apply. The interpreter, Senor Tomé, very decently volunteered to pilot us about the town, which proved to be much larger than it appeared from the water, numbering something over 32,000 souls. The narrow streets, which are paved with flagstones extending to the buildings on either side, ramble along picturesquely except in the newer part of the town, which is more systematic and consequently less interesting. The buildings, even the shops, which are dwellings above the first floor, are all balconied in the true Spanish fashion, and from many of these balconies black-eyed senoritas leaned and bridged with their eyes the barrier that convention maintains between the sexes. In this rather backward part of Spain, the assumption seems to be that women are characterless creatures that must be kept virtuous by coercion. Therefore, the respectable ones are carefully guarded until they are safely married, and then, after a few weeks of social equality, they again retire into oblivion until their daughters are old enough to be taken out. The men, on the other hand, 
flout the laws they make for the other sex and seem to recognize no restrictions. They are a soft lot as a whole, without a vestige of sporting spirit. They are puny both mentally and physically, and seem to spend most of their time telling of their decidedly unromantic adventures. That first evening, we all had dinner at a quaint little sailor's restaurant where native fishermen sat and smoked over their vino tinto or sang to the accompaniment of a guitar and violin. These Gallegos, as the natives of the ancient province of Galicia are still called, are a hardy, honest, industrious lot. They work with their hands and work hard, and they were more to our liking than the gentlemen of the restaurants and cafes. And so, as the food was plentiful and the vino was likewise, we began to feel more reconciled to Spain. Before going aboard that night, we took another turn about the town, which, like most Latin cities, began to liven up at nightfall. Here and there we came upon public fountains where crowds of women gathered with huge jars on their heads to obtain the next day's supply of water. It seems that but few of the houses in Ferrol are provided with modern plumbing, and the water must be carried in this way. I can see now how it is that the majority of the populace, not being particularly energetic, feel that the effort necessary to keep clean is too great a one and let it go at that. There was the usual following of small boys wherever we went, who begged for pennies or cigarettes, and many of whom seemed to be soliciting patronage for the demimonde. At the cafés along the principal thoroughfare, naval officers and languid scions of Ferrol's best families sipped coffee or liqueur at tiny tables set in the street under cheerfully striped awnings, and pensive senoritas, with the ever-present dueña or watchful parent, minced their way along the flagstones. It was all very romantic on the surface, but rather medieval to Western eyes accustomed to a degree of independence and equality of the sexes. The next day was spent largely in cleaning up ship. We never seemed to be able to catch up with this job while underway, due to the fact, I presume, that the skipper is a rather shiftless sort of person himself and fails to impart a spirit of industry to his crew. And then there was an article to get off and shopping to do, which was engineered by our friend of the day before, Senor Tomé, who insisted on providing the crew with a combination guide and beast of burden in the form of an amply proportioned lady of middle age. Through the good offices of this shrewd person, all sorts of interesting provisions were bought at the municipal market at fair prices. They were carried to the ship in a huge basket on her head. In the evening, having had enough of the town for one day, we staged an elaborate dinner on the typhoon, which, as it proved, was most appropriate. For this day, September 14th, was the skipper's birthday, a fact that dawned on him the following morning. As we worked our way into the harbor, we had noticed several shipbuilding establishments along the shore, with husky wooden trawlers under construction, and on the following day, at the invitation of Mr. Martin, who owns one of these yards, Typhoon sailed across the bay to witness a launching, which proved to be quite a social event and attracted the flower of Ferrol. On the way across, we encountered a boatload of ravishing senoritas having some difficulty in managing their craft with the aid of a single youthful male, and so mustering what few phrases of Spanish we could remember, bolstered up with elaborate pantomime, we offered them a tow which was gratefully accepted. Dropping the hook, we rowed ashore to inspect the trawler. In model, she was a decidedly interesting little vessel, with pronounced sheer, quite hollow water lines at the bow, and a gracefully modeled stern. The construction was unusually heavy, and while the joiner work was not of the finest finish, 
It showed considerable skill on the part of the local boat builders. The cost of the job, we learned, was about a quarter of what it would have been in this country. In launching the ship, a method entirely new to us was employed. There was no cradle and no ways except a short track for the keel ending at the water, which was a fathom or so deep right up to the bank. There were bilge blocks to support the hull until it got way on, but once started she just slid down on her keel, and before she had time to list over she was waterborne at the stern and slid off the bank as gracefully as a seal. It was the prettiest launching I have ever witnessed, and it proves that someone in Spain is using his brain for the purpose that the Lord intended. After the launching there was a reception at the home of Mr. Martin, and it was here that we met our friend Ashburn, a young lawyer from Newfoundland, who was spending the summer pitting his wits against the red tape of Spanish officialdom in an endeavor to have one of his father's schooners released from some legal entanglement. It was through Ashburn that we met the members of the English club, the personnel of which is that of the vicar's organization, and from then on, due to the kindness of these gentlemen, Mr. Ashburn and Mr. Martin, our time was well taken up. An interesting afternoon was spent inspecting the dockyard where the Spanish naval vessels are built, the same establishment in which Philip II built the Armada in the 16th century. Modern machinery had been installed in the ancient stone buildings, and, while the volume of work turned out was not large, the two vessels then under construction, a battleship and a cruiser, stacked up favorably with the most up-to-date naval practice. Over at one side of the Navy Yard Basin there was a British ship, the SS Grangetown, whose skipper we had met at the English Club. She was discharging coal, not a particularly interesting process ordinarily, except in Spain, where the work is done by women. A hundred or so disheveled females of assorted ages formed a continuous line up and down the gangplank, carrying the coal in baskets on their heads with the breakneck speed of a funeral procession. The coal was shoveled into the baskets by men, who received twice the wages paid to the women, and who seemed to play favorites, as some of the baskets were but a third full. At the shore end, the laggers were exhorted to greater effort by an energetic matron, chosen, I presume, because of her facility in juggling the Spanish swear words. The demurrage on a few jobs of this kind, which seemed to take forever, ought to be sufficient to install a modern system. What hope is there for a country that totes the coal used for its navy on the heads of women? Captain Oliver of the Grangetown proved to be a most unusual man. A Canadian by birth, he had served throughout the war, and his record was an enviable one. He had been aboard the Vindictive, and was one of the 28 survivors of that heroic landing party of 220 men that stormed the Zeebrugge Mole and wrote one of the most brilliant pages in naval history. One of Captain Oliver's first commands was the ill-fated submarine E-13 that ran aground off Copenhagen in an endeavor to reach the Baltic in the summer of 1915. Some of the readers may recall an article on this dramatic event by the writer, who was on his way from Russia to Copenhagen when it occurred. While lying helpless on the island of Saltholm, which was in neutral territory, the unfortunate craft was shot up by a German cruiser and a number of her crew were killed. When the little Danish gunboat that had tried to intervene approached to rescue the survivors, Captain Oliver had presence of mind enough to jump into the sea, and because of this fact had to be treated as a distressed seaman, escaping the internment which was the fate of the remainder of the survivors. He returned to England on a Danish battleship with the bodies of his dead. 
It was strange that I should have met up by accident with the very man whom I would have risked my neck to interview in those early days of the war. It was on Sunday, September 19th, that Typhoon finally got underway again, but whether to put in at Coruña or to make directly for the Azores was still undecided. Coruña, from what we could gather in Ferrol, was not much of a place. To be sure, Coruña did have railroad facilities and a bullring, obvious advantages that even the civic pride of Ferrol could not dispute. But other than that, there seemed to be a little virtue to the place. At two o'clock in the afternoon, we weighed the hook and started a long beat out the narrow passage against both wind and tide. Several of the small fishing boats were going our way, and when we found that it required all we had to overhaul them, our respect for these little craft went up another notch. Not all of these boats have the dipping lug rig as we first thought. Some of them use the straight lateen with a long yard extending practically to the stem head and with the reef points along the top of the sail. They are not only fast, but seem to sail almost as close to the wind as a sloop. It took us two solid hours to beat out the fjord, for the wind coming down the ravines was erratic and the tide was strong. By the time we reached the fortified point where the fjord joins the bay, the wind died, leaving us slatting about in rather too close proximity to the rocks. At 5.30 a light northwest breeze sprang up, and by six o'clock we had crossed the middle bight and cleared the eastern point of the large bay on which Coruña is situated. As we skirted this rocky promontory, the hills ahead of us were purpling in the evening shadows, and the heavy swell coming in from the sea broke in fantastic designs sixty to eighty feet up the rocks. And then, just as the lighthouse began to flash and the lights of Coruña opened up across the bay, the wind died again and left us wallowing amid a school of porpoises. By eight o'clock it was pitch dark, and as we made our careful way into the harbor, a big liner, all lit up like a grand hotel, got underway and bore down upon us with both red and green lights showing. We were in an awkward situation, with only about a knot steerage way, and it took a bit of quick work to get our port light in place in time to prevent being run down. We had been conserving our precious kerosene supply, which we had been unable to replenish at Ferrol. When the big fellow was nearly on top of us, he changed his course and passed within twenty yards of our stern. With a light southwest breeze, we felt our way in with the lead and anchored off a brightly lighted waterfront, on which there seemed to be some sort of an amusement park like a miniature Coney Island. There was great excitement as Jim sighted a tram car. It must have been designed after Fontaine Fox's Toonerville trolley, but it was still a tram car, and it stood for progress, and we began to feel that Coruña was not the insignificant place that Ferrol considered it. Lying quietly at anchor among the shadowy shapes of all sorts of interesting craft, we resisted the temptation to row ashore, prepared a good dinner, and turned in. Our stay at Coruña was a short one. Eighteen hours after we dropped the hook, we were again on our way. But in this short time we saw enough of the town to neutralize the bad impression of Spain we had formed during the previous week. A sail about the harbor that had seemed so mysterious as we felt our way in at night gave us a pretty good idea of the place even before we went ashore. Several sizable ships gave evidence that it was a port of considerable importance, an intimation of which fact had been conveyed to us rather forcefully the night before by the liner that had nearly run us down. 
To make up for the rather inadequate docking facilities, there were scores of heavy lighters lying at anchor and looking far less romantic by daylight than they had at night. An ancient battleship returned our salute promptly, and the crew of a trim little coasting vessel with a sort of lateen schooner rig waved us a cordial greeting as we gained headway under jib and mizzen for a look around. Over at the north end of the harbor, near the cigarette factory, scores of trim trawlers of the type we had seen launched were berthed along the piers with nets slung up to dry. Tugs and workboats steamed or putted their busy way in all directions. We had never had much opportunity to maneuver Typhoon in tight places, and it was good sport, this picking our way about among the craft of the harbor with a good fresh breeze. She handled beautifully. Completing the circuit of the harbor, we shot into the inner basin through a narrow opening in the outer pier and luffed up alongside the quay, lost headway, and had our lines over the bollards with a snap that seemed to meet with the approval of the crew of a little coasting vessel moored just ahead of us. And then, of course, there gathered the usual curious throng. Wherever you go in your own little ship, you are pretty sure to find someone who speaks your language. Why bother, then, with letters of introduction, when the only people you really care to see are the ones that are most likely to see you coming? This time it was Señor José Panaya, a gentleman in the shipping business who had lived for twelve years in New York and consequently did literally speak our language. Under his guidance we did the town, or rather Fox, Dorset, and I did, for Charles, having run the spout of an oil can through his foot, was compelled to stay on the ship. Now Coruña is really a remarkable place. It is the capital of that subdivision of ancient Galicia, now known as the province of Coruña, and numbers between 40,000 and 50,000 inhabitants. While its early history is shrouded in legend, it is pretty generally believed that originally the town was a Phoenician settlement. At any rate, it is mentioned under an earlier name by the historian Pomponius Mela, who wrote in the first century. Its churches and some of its fortifications date from the 12th and 13th centuries, and its later history is most interesting. In 1588, Coruña sheltered the Invincible Armada on the eve of its departure for England. In 1598, the city was captured and burned by the British under Drake and Norris, and in 1747, and again in 1805, it was the scene of a naval victory of the British over the French. While knocking about the town, we found in the Jardín de San Carlos a statue to Sir John Moore, who was mortally wounded in an engagement between the French and English during the Peninsular War in 1809 and was buried in the ramparts. As may be gathered from the photograph of the waterfront, Coruña is as up-to-date as any town of its size in Europe, with an added picturesque quality that stamps it immediately as a part of Spain. The streets are clean, the parks are well-kept, and the people have a healthy, intelligent look, in contrast to the provincialism of Ferrol. Over on the ocean side of the little peninsula on which the town is situated, there is a beautiful beach where Soroya might have painted his famous bathing group. In the outskirts of the town, there is an athletic field, a significant feature, and of course there is the bull ring without which no city in Spain would be worthy of the name. As none of us had ever seen a bull ring, Senor Naya looked up the caretaker, or whatever he is called, who piloted us about the works. We found him in a quaint little shop adjoining the amphitheater, busily engaged in building, of all unexpected things, a modern motor cruiser. The little boat, a 30-footer, I should say, 
was of the raised deck type, and, except for a bow that reflected extreme originality on the part of the builder, and huge bulging port lights like the lenses of those old-fashioned bullseye lanterns, she might have stepped bodily from the pages of motorboat. The bull ring was a modern concrete structure capable of seating half the population of Coruña. There had been a bush league fight the day before, and the gruesome evidences of it were everywhere apparent. Behind the scenes, it was much as if we had penetrated the training quarters of an American ballpark, except that the paraphernalia had a more sinister look than the bats and gloves and other gear of the diamond. Here was the sword with which yesterday's bulls had been dispatched, bent and black with blood, the handle wrapped with tire tape like Babe Ruth's favorite bat. There the broken gaudy remnants of barbed bandarias that are thrust into the neck of the bull to enrage him. Convenient to one of the exits from the ring was an efficient-looking sort of butcher shop where the carcasses of the bulls are cleaned for market, and out behind there was a repair yard or service station where the gored horses are patched up and sent back to the ring to satisfy the bloodlust of the multitude. Everything was there just as Blasco Ibanez told of it in his novel Blood and Sand. There is an undeniable fascination about a bull ring, but you go away rather ashamed to look a horse in the eye. A stroll back through town, a dinner at Senor Naya's favorite restaurant, and we were ready to be off for the Azores. End of chapter 8